friends, welcome back. It's good to be here. I'm Lizzie Heiselt. And I'm Valerie Best. We've been talking to David, a stay-at-home dad, and his wife, Kristen, a paleontologist, about their family. Well, mostly David up until now, about his decision to adopt first a six-year-old boy with cerebral palsy, and then a teenager with severe emotional and mental trauma. David was single when he adopted his boys, and some of his friends and family had worried that he wouldn't be able to find a woman willing to marry him if children were part of the deal. Enter Kristen, who was, obviously, willing to marry him. Kristen had been married before, and she brought her own young daughter into the relationship. And while she was slower to decide to marry David than David had been to decide to marry her, she did get there eventually, and remains fully committed to David, Carlos, Jonathan, and their other children. If you haven't listened to David share his story about adopting Carlos and Jonathan, pause this episode and go back to that one, then come back here. We'll be talking about surprises, good surprises, and less good surprises, and how those surprises can shift your worldview and your perspective so severely that you are forced to expand your very being. So let's get to it. David and Kristen got married in 2008, and after a rough start and a lot of pain and heartache regarding their son, John, they felt like it was the right time to have a baby. We didn't want to wait too long because we weren't especially young in childbearing years. (laughs) We got pregnant with Emmeline and you know everything was fine with the pregnancy and fine with the birth and fine with the first year and she was just so engaging and she she was so interactive and everyone who met her said so and so um, when that started to kind of drift a little I mean I don't think she sort of withdrew within herself but she didn't learn to speak and the one or two words she did pick up, she only spoke for a couple of months. Um, you just, I, I think I always wonder, like, what else is in there? It's very hard to tell what's in her mind, except the, you know, sort of emotional state you can guess at fairly well. But even that's got to be more complicated than what she's able to express. So before we even knew any of that, um, when Emmeline was only about four months old. We'd gone away on a research trip. I was going on a collecting trip as I did every summer. And David came with the baby. And while we were away, um, I was talking about how I was feeling or I don't know, whatever I said in his mind, he's like, are are you pregnant? (laughs) I'm like, no. I can't be. Emmeline's like four months old. She's breastfeeding. I can't be pregnant, but maybe. And that, so when we got back from that trip, we, you know, checked and we went to the doctor and he's like, well, here's the picture. I'm like, um, that's like a baby. <laughs> that's not even like a little sack. It's like a baby. He's like, yeah, the baby's due March 5th. We're like, that's Emmeline's first birthday. So that was a fun discovery. Like Kristen's pregnancy with Emmeline, it was fairly straightforward, and a few days before Emmeline turned one, Kristen gave birth to their second daughter, Annabeth, Irish twins. And then, about six months after Annabeth was born, they started to realize that maybe Emmeline had some developmental delays, or something. She had hit every developmental milestone up to that point, but then her progress slowed. She had just she'd hit all the milestones when she was supposed to, and it was just so engaging until about a year and a half. And so that was when, you know, our doctor said, well, let's, you know, recommend it for early intervention. Um, 
and they denied her because she was doing well enough. They were like, you know, but she continued to whatever. So we kind of appealed that and went to a neurologist. And, and that was when he said, oh, she's floppy. Of course, well enough isn't exactly comforting, especially as Emmeline's development continued to change and slow and even regress. We took her to a place here in Staten Island that uh, Institute for Basic Research is funded by the state of New York, which their specialty is supposed to be kind of finding. They missed it as well. Everyone just started saying autism. Um, and yet the people who had worked with her uh, in the early intervention and stuff, they all kept saying it's just not autism. And we kept saying the same thing. It just wasn't something was kind of different. Um, and everyone just kept saying, oh, she's going to start talking anytime, anytime. But instead, it just seemed like she would lose more and more, right? She stopped being able to kind of do puzzles, stopped being able to stack blocks. Um, the words she had, the f couple of words, right? She stopped, but all the initial sounds she used to be able to make for everything, which they worked so hard to help her do, she started to lose the ability to do that. At first, she'd been diagnosed with hypotonic cerebral palsy, which is a weak form of CP that accounted for the low muscle tone. But an MRI showed there wasn't any damage to her brain, so the diagnosis didn't really fit. With the regressions to her speech and her motor skills, they were told it was probably autism, but David and Kristen didn't really buy that either. With the autism diagnosis came an invitation to participate in a genetic study. And as part of it, they wanted to do genetic testing on everyone in the family to try to find markers for autism. And so um, they had called Kristen and said, the doctor would like to talk to you guys. Um, but they didn't make it sound serious. But then the doctor wanted to make this appointment over the phone. He wanted to make sure both of them were available. And that was when they realized that maybe something was off or more serious than they imagined. You know, when the doctor called, I was like, hi, he says, is your wife there too? And I said, no, and he seemed a little taken aback. And that was when I first started to kind of worry because he seemed, you know, and then he said, well, I'm sorry to tell you, but your daughter has Rett syndrome. And I had no idea what that was. But he was definitely upset, the doctor. At telling us. At and he just kept saying, I'm so sorry. I know this must be devastating to hear. And I just remember thinking, what is this? Because she, she's fine. Right? This is what I'm, I'm thinking. She's fine. I mean, okay, yeah, she's struggling, but she's fine. And so I went upstairs like and I Googled Rett syndrome and I just lost it. Um, you know, I read about the rapid regression phase, the kind of pseudo stationary phase, and the end stage of the disease. And I just thought my daughter's going to die with it. I mean, it, first of all, I knew she was going to die because Rett syndrome was almost always fatal. We really hope there's going to be a cure. There's no treatment or cure for it still. Um, but it's, you know, they, they know the mutation. They know which gene it's on. So we keep, I guess every time I talk about it, I always bring up this thing because I can't live with any other um, outcome, but that someday there will be a cure because what I don't want to see is kind of that end stage for my daughter, right? Where her body will kind of be in these spastic kind of um, just lots of twitching and pains and, and, and like cramping all over the place and not able to chew or swallow anymore and, or breathe. Rett disease is a very rare genetic and neurological condition that mainly affects females. 
As in Emmeline's case, it is first displayed by missing milestones and regressions between 6 and 18 months. Girls with Rhett have difficulty walking, talking, eating, and even breathing. After the initial loss of movement and speech, they enter a plateau phase, which can last for decades before their bodies begin to decline again. In the long plateau phase, the hallmark of the disease is repetitive hand movements, and although they cannot communicate well with their voice, their bright expressive eyes indicate that they are cognitive of much more than they can communicate. Boys with RET are much rarer and generally have a more severe course of the disease. RET can and often does eventually cause death due to breathing and swallowing difficulties. Having that kind of diagnosis laid at your feet can be overwhelming. David says he manages the pain and the prognosis by focusing on the hope of the cure. The fact that researchers are working on it and they have specific information about it, like knowing which genes have mutated, is enormously comforting to him. So when Emmeline first started dragging her foot and then started falling down more and more, he would think about how someday there would be therapies. There would be an end that would allow Emmeline to live more of the life they imagined for her when she had been the bright and engaging baby. Such a huge, devastating diagnosis can also feel isolating. Who among their friends and family could truly relate? At the difficult time when they were becoming aware of the disease and adjusting to its impact on their lives, there were some people whose love and care were able to pierce through the isolation. And, if nothing else, David and Kristen felt like their family was seen. The first one was when David was asked to serve in a significant position in church as a counselor in the stake presidency, which manages several congregations in a geographic area, in David's case, Brooklyn and Staten Island. As he began that service, he was given a blessing by an apostle of Christ. It was nice. The apostle who was there usually doesn't set a counselor apart. In fact, he says he's never done that, but he'd set me apart and uh, gave a very nice blessing where he said, I bless your children and your family through you. And it was, it was a beautiful blessing. He said, I'm giving you this blessing. I'm giving them this blessing as if my hands were on each of their heads. And it was really powerful. Like you could see in the small time he spent with us that he just got it, what was happening in our lives and how it must feel. And he's not the only person that has ever done that. There have been others, but it, it's such a support when you see someone understand, like this Make-A-Wish trip we just went on, they get it, right? Not necessarily about Rett syndrome, but about what it's like to, you know, have a family member, a child who's, you know, in that much danger of death, pretty much. And they do what they do for that reason, and they all get it. And it just, it's so powerful, the support to see people with that sort of empathy. And that was sort of one of the first times that I really felt that from people, was when Elder Rasband, you know, met those, just those few minutes with us, really. There are challenges to having a child with an illness that takes up so much time and energy and concern. Obviously, it's a challenge for the whole family, but it would be short-sighted and narrow-minded to think that there are only challenges, or that each family member doesn't also gain so much by having a close relationship with Emmeline as well. There's the fact that Emmeline's diagnosis paved the way for their family to make a 10-day Make-A-Wish Foundation trip to Universal Studios and Legoland 
with plenty of spending money, but there's also the way it has expanded their world from the inside. I feel like I, I like myself more that there's more to me kind of thing, right? These All these different facets because of the experience I have with these really different kids, really different kind of life that um, kind of rounds out my experience in ways I never would have considered. And I like that about myself. I think even sometimes it's kind of humiliating to say, but we're like, Oh, do you ever watch that show Speechless with Minnie Driver? She like prides herself on being the mom of the special needs. (laughs) Right? We're like, oh, we're that family who's so enduring. (laughs) He's got to have something, right? (laughs) In all this awfulness. Mm -hmm. But there's like something to that that's not just a pride or just finding something to love about it, right? But it really does sort of add this richness to your life. And I sometimes think that with Emily, like, it's hard to see how her brain works, but you can see a little bit and it's very different. And it's kind of amazing to see how a different human brain processes things so differently and experiences them so differently, the sort of broad range of what a human mind can be. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but I sometimes feel that way about it. And even the same with Carlos, right? His mind is very different, probably even from what it would have been had he not been injured. But it's a really different sort of brain, and it's sort of fascinating to see what that human range of human brains is capable of. Emmeline's condition also opens the door for them to see how other people's brains and hearts work. Like Annabeth, who at less than a year younger than Emmeline, provides a close contrast and a close friend. She had just turned six when we talked to Kristen and David, and at the time was demanding the sort of attention you would give to a baby, needing to be spoon-fed by a parent, for example. It seemed to be her way of trying to even out the scales of parental attention when Emmeline seemed to need so much of it. But as well as competing for attention from her parents, she was also able to give attention, a different kind of attention to Emmeline. And then you see the, the flip side of that, the way she sort of takes care of her because she's known, she knows and she's always known what Emmeline can or can't do or is capable of and where she needs protecting or whatever. And she, um, you know, she'll get into Emmeline's bed with her and wrap her arms around her neck and like s- snuggle into her and try to make her laugh. And Emmeline will just get And Emmeline laughs and laughs. Or if Annabeth takes that little green car, wherever it is, over there, and she like zooms around the dining room table, and Emmeline just cracks up like she wants to get on that car and go. Sometimes we put her on it, mm-hmm. try to zoom her around, and it, Emily doesn't just seeing her sister. Yeah, do she doesn't she respond do. to anybody else like that, right? Even the other siblings. And Emily can also bring out the best, most caring instincts in other children as well. David told us about a little girl who had been invited to Annabeth's birthday party at the Staten Island Children's Museum. Emmeline's presence may have been a little unsettling to some of the children, so David explained a little about her condition to those who were lingering nearby. And this one little girl kept coming back over while the kids are playing and doing their games and eating cake. She kept coming back over and she'd just sit down next to Emily and I thought, oh, she must want to watch the show that Emily's watching on the phone. She didn't even look at it. 
And she didn't stare at Emmeline either. She just sat there like you would sit next to your any kid, right? As a friend, in a friendly way. <laughs> like it was the most natural thing in the world. And that, it, it just really, I found it moving. She was like doing it on purpose. It was yeah, on purpose be, doing that. So yeah. that. She wouldn't feel left out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like every, awesome every so often she'd check that. back and then she'd come over. I told her mother, I'm like, listen, you know what your daughter is doing? <laughs> And her mother wasn't surprised. She, I mean, she was very pleased, but not surprised. I guess that's in her daughter's nature. I don't know that little girl very well, but it was nice because it, it was clear Emily wanted to join in this party and knew she wasn't going to be able to do it. Like, didn't see how she could quite break into it. It can be really beautiful and moving to be able to see and feel of this kind of love and empathy from people all kinds of people, even a kindergartner. So there are blessings and moments and access to the best parts of people that also come from being Emmeline's parents, which is not to say that they don't sometimes imagine the life they thought they were heading toward when Emmeline was a baby, so bright-eyed and engaging, or hope for that life to find them again in the future. In my office at work, I have a lot of different pictures of the kids at all different ages. And Every single time I glance up from my work and I look at the pictures, the first thought in my head, that's before we knew she had read. That's after we knew. That's yeah. before. And the ones before, it gets just awful in your stomach every time. And yet I can't put those pictures away in my office, even though it reminds me every time I look at it, that's before hope, we knew. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I have one. She's only six months old in, in Paris. That's before we knew there was anything wrong at all. Right? And I can't stand it, but I can't put the picture away either. In the years since we originally talked to David and Kristen, there's been a lot of progress in the research on rat disease. Gene therapies are being developed that look like they might be able to reverse the effects of the disease. Clinical trials are set to begin. And of course, they are hopeful. The pandemic has been especially fraught for their family because Emmeline's breathing capacity is not 100%. We talked in the last episode about why some people are hesitant to adopt. They feel that by having biological children, they take some of the risk of being surprised by genetically acquired challenges. They think it will be easier to love a child who comes from your body and blood. But that is clearly not at all true. Every child, no matter how they come to your family, will challenge you. And every child, no matter how they come to your family, will stretch your capacities and your perspectives. And every child can show you new ways to love. The truth is that nobody knows what they're going to get. Life is full of surprises that will lead you off the path you thought was yours. It might be to a harder path, rockier, steeper, less sunny, but it may also show you things you wouldn't get to see otherwise. The way some people love and care for each other, the truth about how we spend our time, what we were able to endure, and what we were able to love. I know we've already heard a lot from David and Kristen, but they've lived a lot of experiences as their family has grown, and they still have a lot more to share. So please, join us next time to hear from them. We'll be talking about things like boundaries, exceptionalism, hope, again, and what it feels like to reach a finish line. We hope you'll join us.
Que faites-vous Que faites-vous